Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. We're two weeks away from Easter. And so uh, over the next couple of Sundays, what I'd love to be able to do is get us maybe perhaps our hearts a little prepared for, for Easter. And so over the next two Sundays, in the lead up to Good Friday, I want to share with us a, uh, a couple of messages entitled, Jesus's Seven Last Words from the Cross. That, that on the cross, in the six hours that Jesus is on the cross, Jesus makes seven statements. They're known as seven Jesus's seven words. But they're not seven literal words. They're, they're seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. And all of them are significant because all of them reveal to us something about who Jesus is and what he came to be able to do. And so this morning, sort of starting in this series of Jesus's seven words from the cross, I want to begin this morning just by praying, and then we're going to jump straight in. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd help me to be able to preach your word, that God, today we might leave this place different people because we spent time in your presence and in your word today. God, have our hearts open to be able to hear and be moved today by all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something about people's last words uttered in this life that that inspire our curiosity. And they cause us to be able to treat them as being especially weighty. History records the last words of many of its famed figures. Um, Augustus Caesar, his final words were, I found Rome of clay, I leave it to you of marble. Sir Winston Churchill, a great man, his last words ever recorded were, I'm bored with it all. In 1977, during a sleepless night, Elvis Presley told his fiancée as his final words, I'm going to the bathroom to read. A rather plain ending to the performer's life. Frank Sinatra, in his final moments, uttered, I'm losing it. Convicted murderer James W. Rogers was put in front of a firing squad in Utah and asked if he had a last request. He replied, please bring me a bulletproof vest. Leonardo da Vinci said this is his final uh, words. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should should have. History records that the last statements of many of its famed figures. And Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. And these are known as Jesus's seven last words. They're seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross that reveal to us something about who Jesus is and actually what he came to. To do, And so this morning, we're going to take the first three of these. The first three statements that Jesus makes from the cross. Here's the first one. That Jesus utters from the cross in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. And this is where we're going to spend a bit of time today in Luke chapter 23. Jesus utters from the cross. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus' first word from the cross is actually, Father, forgive them. The executioners expected Jesus to cry because crucifixion was something that the Romans had become quite good at. They would do this all the time. In fact, people in the first century were accustomed to seeing people be crucified. And so the executioners had seen many people die this way. And they had expected that Jesus, like all of those who'd been crucified before him and like many that were crucified after him, that they expected to hear cries and they expected to hear groans and they expected to hear pain from Jesus 
being nailed to the cross. Roman philosopher Seneca wrote that those crucified cursed the day of their birth, the executioners and their mothers, and they spat upon onlookers. That, that oftentimes those that were put on crosses, they had some stuff to say, but it was the most vile things a person could conjure up. After all, they were being executed for public spectacle. Uh, Cicero wrote that it was at times necessary to cut out the tongues of those being crucified to stop the torrent of blasphemy. Such was the case for, for Roman crucifixions. And so for those who were around the cross at that, very, at that very moment that Jesus was crucified, they did expect to hear something. But on that first Good Friday, no doubt people expected something to be said from the cross, but, but certainly not these words. That, that Jesus' first words from the cross are actually to speak words of forgiveness. That was unlike anybody who'd ever been crucified before. That the religious leaders who were standing there and taunting Jesus, you read this in, in Luke chapter 23, who were taunting Jesus, saying, if you really are the Messiah, that they expected that at this point, that the one who taught love your enemies and bless those who hate you would now turn on his gospel and have a few more choice things to be able to say to onlookers. But not Jesus. Jesus is on the cross and the first utterance from his mouth is actually words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the first words that Jesus speaks on the cross are astonishing, are they not? That Jesus upon the cross utters words of forgiveness. Then Jesus said, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Them. Who actually is them when Jesus says that? Like the disciples? Is are they included in the them and, and the crowds? Does, does that include in them and the religious leaders and perhaps the political class and, and even the soldiers who are carrying out this, this very act? And the answer to all of those is yes. That the disciples deserted Jesus and the crowds had chosen Barabbas over Jesus and the religious leaders had scorned Jesus and the political class, they had washed their hands of Jesus and the soldiers, well, they'd actually carried out the crucifixion itself. They had pierced Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus looks at all of them and he speaks words of forgiveness. That, that's easy to read, but it's almost lost on us, right? That in the middle of being crucified to redeem all mankind, that in that moment, the first words that come from Jesus' mouth are words of forgiveness. Some of you will have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which was directed by Mel Gibson. But what you may not know is that Mel Gibson actually made a cameo appearance in the film, The Passion of the Christ. In fact, I think we have a photo of it. That it's actually Mel Gibson's hand that puts the nail against Jesus's hand in the film. It's the only time that Mel Gibson's actually seen in the film, but it was symbolic of the fact that Mel Gibson holds himself accountable first and foremostly for Jesus having to die. Since, as Mel Gibson points out, it is for each of us our sin that took him to the cross in the first place. And so before we can begin to see the cross of Jesus as something that was done for us, and it was, but we have to first understand that the cross was actually something done by us. But why did Jesus have to suffer in order to forgive sins? Surely there was an easier way. Surely God could have just simply clicked his fingers and, and forgiven all wrongdoing. But why does there have to be payment in order for forgiveness to be procured? 
The truth is, is because we know from even our own experience that real forgiveness always costs. And so imagine for a minute that, you know, I, I, I lend my car to somebody and, uh, and give them the keys and say, you know, it's got a full tank of fuel. Feel free to borrow it. Doug, don't put a scratch on it. You imagine Doug is borrowing my car. This scenario would probably be around the other way, but let's imagine that Doug's borrowing my car. And as he's backing out, because he's getting older now, as he's backing out of the driveway, this illustration was not supposed to go this way, but I feel like just even as we're going, it's getting there. That, that as he's backing out, right, he, he collects the letterbox and the fence and destroys the letterbox and the fence and, and wipes out the whole side of the car, right? What do you do in that situation? Well, you've got three options. I feel like this is really dangerous now that I've included Doug in this, right? Well, there was no names involved. It was a much more simple illustration. Firstly, you could call his doctor and admit that he's... No, I'm just kidding, all right? Let's just stick to the illustration here. You've got three options, right? The first is demand that the person who damaged the vehicle and the fence and the letterbox, that they pay for those damages. Because someone's going to have to pay for that because you can't leave it the way that it is. Secondly, you could say, well, let's go 50-50. You pay for half and I'll pay for half. Yes, that letterbox was in the wrong spot, being on the footpath. It should have been far away from where you were driving. Um, or thirdly, you could refuse to let them pay and you cover the cost completely. But in all three of those scenarios, the damage has to be borne by someone. Either you absorb the cost or, or, or they absorb the cost or, 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 you, or you go 50-50 on it, but it's not like those costs just vanish into thin air. And so for forgiveness, forgiveness is always costly because forgiveness isn't simply about giving words, it's about making right what was wrong. And so to forgive is costly. It means you bear the cost of the misdeed yourself. And so then in this way, anytime you choose to forgive, you actually go through a form of suffering because there's a cost involved in really forgiving and making things right. And so it makes sense then for Jesus, doesn't it? That he couldn't utter, Father, forgive them from the Mount of the Beatitudes, or from the shores of Galilee, or from the temple courts in Jerusalem. Ultimate forgiveness could only be extended as endured suffering happened. And so it was from the cross that the words of forgiveness resound, that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the crucifixion of Jesus was not just by them, but it was also by you and I because of our sin, then it also stands to reason, and it must be true, that Jesus' forgiveness were not just for those that were there on that day, but Jesus' forgiveness is also for us as well. The first statement that Jesus makes from the cross is, Father, forgive them. And that truth rings true, not just for those who happen to be around that cross in the six hours that changed the world, but it also echoes through the corridors of time to you and I, who also are recipients of that forgiveness that God bore the complete cost of. The first word from the cross is, Father, forgive them. The second word is this, today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32, this is what the scripture says. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. One of the criminals who had hung there, verse 39, um, hurled insults at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. 
Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here it is, Jesus' second statement from the cross. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The scripture tells us that Jesus is not actually crucified alone, but actually that there are two thieves there, one on his left and one on his right, both criminals, both worthless in the eyes of the city. And practically everything about Jesus is fastened by nails and has been tortured by whips up until this point and and now tied by ropes and through breath that was short and his body bound, Jesus's ears were open. Jesus's ears were open and it can only be that the thief heard Jesus's first words, Father, forgive them. And being so moved, he thought to himself to throw himself upon divine mercy. Come on, sometimes we're so familiar with this story and we've read it so many times, but but to try and put ourselves in this moment, right? That these two thieves are hanging on the cross and they overhear Jesus say, Father, forgive them. And one of them begins to curse Jesus and say, well, if you really are, then you should get yourself down and us too. And the other, hearing those words of forgiveness, decides to throw himself upon divine mercy. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is significant, right? There's a dying man asking another dying man for eternal life. This was the thief's last prayer. The truth is it may very well have been his first ever prayer to say, Lord, remember me as you come into your kingdom. That he had lived as a thief and he was dying now as a thief. And even in his death, he was seeking to steal paradise on the way out. And Jesus' response to this man, who happens to be hanging beside him, is astonishing, right? Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That Jesus himself said, Ask, and it will be given. Jesus taught that, right? Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And here is a thief hanging on a cross beside Jesus who knocked once, who sought once, who asked once and received everything. This is such a great picture of grace. And in the month of February, as we were talking about our culture and what sort of makes MCC what it is, we've kind of taken the time to use this story as as part of being others-focused, that right in the middle of redeeming all of mankind, that Jesus has time for the sinner beside him. I'm nothing like Jesus. If it were me and I was in the middle of redeeming all mankind and this was the purpose for which I'd come to the earth, I'd be like, guys, stop talking. I'm concentrating. I know you guys are holier than me and you don't have little kids that whine, but you know when you hear that tone in their voice and it's like, if I hear that whine, I could bury you in the backyard and then we don't... No, I don't... And yet here's Jesus in the middle of redeeming all mankind and he still has time for a conversation with a man whose life is about to be lost. Now this is such a great picture of grace because the thief who throws himself upon the mercy of God has done literally absolutely nothing to deserve it. All he did was simply ask and found the mercy and grace of God 
more than he could have ever imagined. Most assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. But we're told that on that day that there were two thieves upon the hill of Calvary, one on Jesus' left and one on his right. But for a minute, would you go with me? Because perhaps there was a third thief on the cross that day. I want to put to you, and I want you to follow me because this could be taken out of context, right? But that Jesus was the third thief on the hill at Golgotha. That the first two thieves on his left and his right, that they had stolen money and objects from households, but Jesus was a different kind of thief. That the third thief pulled off the greatest heist in history right in front of everybody's eyes. That this third thief, Jesus, had a long criminal record. Think about it. That Jesus had already met a woman at the well, a woman with a checkered sexual history, and he had robbed her of her shame and her guilt. That Jesus had robbed lepers of their disease, the lame, the sick, and the poor of their disgrace. That Jesus was a thief, but a thief unlike what we would expect. That he had robbed two blind men, didn't he? Of their muteness and given them a voice to praise and vision to be able to see. That he'd robbed a demon-possessed man of his pain and he'd robbed the disciples of their fear. He had robbed the smug and the proud and the pious of their self-sufficiency. But Jesus, crucified among thieves, performs his greatest robbery actually at his execution. Because on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus robbed Satan of his power, the grave of its victory and death of its sting. You can begin to see that the statements of Jesus from the cross, right, actually give us an insight into who this man hanging 2,000 years ago on that cross actually is and what it is that he came to do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Most assuredly, I say to you, as a full extension of grace, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's the third one, and this is the last one we're going to do this morning. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. John chapter 19 and verse 25, this is what the scripture says. It's John's account of the crucifixion. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Caiaphas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, believed to be John, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, the seven words of Jesus, and next week we'll go into a few more of these, but of the seven words that Jesus speaks from the cross, this, this one kind of seems like the most unlikely. Like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's likely, because that's what Jesus is like. And most assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. God extending grace and mercy completely unreservedly and completely undeserved. But this one kind of seems unusual. That in the middle of redeeming all mankind, that Jesus still has time to care for his mum. This is important as a son who has a mum, that I need to remember this, right? But my mum, who's actually uh, here today, my mum, who always says, you know, in all of your sermons, you know that you always get to be the hero and I'm always the villain. That was particularly true when I was a youth pastor. It's less true now, but it's how I remember those stories. That Jesus, in the middle of redeeming all mankind, takes a moment to speak to his mum. That of the seven words from the cross, this seems to me the most unlikely. To Mary, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. 
And then the scripture records details about Mary's accommodation from that day forth. In Jesus, we have the eternal God and creator fulfilling the eternal plan for the redemption of mankind. And right in the middle of it, he's thinking about the welfare of his mother. This tells us something about Jesus, that he touches both the infinite and the finite at the same time, that he's both spiritual and he's tangible, that he's the eternal son of God and he's down to earth. It's curious to me that Jesus upon the cross would be so human, right, to consider the well-being of his mother. And yet this is part of the mystery of Jesus, that his glory is immeasurable, but he was embodied, that he's eternal, but he's made flesh, that he's the son of heaven, but born of a woman, that he's fully God and he's fully man at the same time. And so history is filled with the stories of men who claimed to be gods, of religions promising that through your own goodness, that men may elevate themselves to God. But God becoming man? Heaven condescending to earth? That's like unlike any other belief system. It's what makes Christianity so unique because of Jesus. The Muslim prophet Muhammad claimed that on one occasion that he was taken from earth to heaven. And the Dome of the Rock memorializes that alleged event. But Jesus was making a far more audacious claim than Muhammad ever made. Jesus claimed that heaven was his eternal home and that he came down from heaven to earth. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, maybe to throw a scripture into this, says this, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And so when Jesus took on flesh and blood, Mary became his mother, and you and I, we became his brothers and sisters, and only a God willing to be made flesh can bleed. Only a God willing to be made flesh can feel. Only a God willing to be made flesh can thirst and can cry and can experience our human suffering and emotion. Only a God willing to be made flesh can share our human experience and suffer for our sin on our behalf in order to be able to redeem us and make us right before God. And so that Jesus in the middle of the crucifixion, has time to consider his mom, tells us something about him, that this man is unlike any other man because he is fully God and he's fully man at the same time. He's fully God in that he's sinless, that he's perfect in every way, and yet he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes and became subject to humanity. He's fully God. And yet at the same time, he's also fully man. He was tempted in all points as we attempted. He was subject to the susceptibility of human experience and emotion. He could bleed and he could hurt. He could feel agony and the elation of joy. And ultimately what this means is that he's the perfect savior. That he's sinless and perfect, but he also understands the weaknesses of our human experience. And so he is the perfect saviour in every way. 
And so as we continue this series next Sunday and in the lead up to Good Friday, I want to try and prepare our hearts for this. Because the truth is, there was never a pulpit like the cross. And there was never a congregation quite like the one that assembled on that Friday. And there was never a sermon preached quite like the one that Jesus made with his seven statements from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Most assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Next week, we're going to start with statement number four, which is, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? That these statements reveal to us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so as we conclude this morning and as, um, as the worship team comes back, I want to leave us just with one story. But maybe just to focus our time together this morning on one last thought, which is this. What it was that Jesus did for us. What it costs to be able to bring us home. I hope this morning you kind of feel a bit like this, like my heart's being prepared as we're a couple of weeks from Easter. And Easter is planning for different things, but but it's also a time to prepare our hearts and be reminded again afresh of all that Jesus did. There was a little boy, and this little boy had, had built this little model boat. He'd saved up his money to be able to do it, and he'd built this little model boat and had a white hull with a blue line down the side and a sail. And, and after building this boat and spending time laboring over it and getting it just right, he'd finally finished building this boat, and it was perfect. It was perfect in every way. And so he wanted to see if it could sail. So he took the little boat and he went down to the local stream and he pushed it out from the bank. And with its sails open, by the time it had got out from the bank, it sort of caught the, the wind in this open plain where this stream kind of ran. It caught the wind, but there was also a little bit of a current that was sort of running downstream. And so as the boat drifted from the bank and came into the middle of the river, it began to go. And, and it was really well built. It was really streamlined in the water and the sails were high enough that it started to really push downstream. Well, it started moving so quickly that the boy couldn't keep up. He started to run alongside the, the bank of the river to try and keep up with the boat, which was now starting to go out of sight. He, he chased and chased, but, but eventually the, the boat had so much momentum that, that it got out of sight and he lost it. He, he assumed that it would be lost forever. But weeks later, he happened to be walking through the main street of his town, and in that town there was a toy shop. And as he walked past the toy shop, something caught his eye in the window. It was this beautiful boat. It was a sailboat, a model one. It had a white hull with a blue line down the middle of it. And so as he went inside and inspected the boat, he realized this boat didn't just look like the boat he'd built. This was actually his boat. Because just under the rudder was his initial still inscribed on it. And so he went to the store and he said, thank you so much. You, you, you found my boat. I, I lost it. I'd, I'd built it and, and tried sailing it and it sailed out of sight and, and I thought it was lost forever, but you found my boat. Thank you so much for finding my boat. And the store owner corrected him and said, no, 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 no. this boat's for sale. He said, the voice explained, but, but, but it's my boat. Like it even has my initials on it. Like it, it's got my fingerprints all over it. I built this thing. The store owner retorted, no, no, no. If you want this boat, you'll need to buy it. Well, the boy didn't have enough money to be able to do that. But he wanted the boat. It was his. And so he worked for the next number of weeks mowing lawns and washing cars and earning enough money until eventually he had enough money to go into the store and to purchase the boat. He walked into the store and he put his bag of coins on the counter and said, I'll have the boat in the window, please. The one with the white hull with the blue line down the side. 
As he took the boat home and walked back up the street, he was overheard by some onlookers whispering to the boat, you were twice mine. First I made you, and then I bought you. And ultimately, that is what Jesus did for us. That you and I, created by God, are twice his. That first he made us, and then by sending his son in our place, he bought us too. That we are twice his. And so my prayer for you as we lead into Easter, and would you stand to your feet this morning? My prayer for you as we lead into Easter is that in the middle of organizing Easter egg hunts and festivities with family and barbecues and time at the beach and all those things that are part of Easter, that, that we would also take the time just to begin to prepare our hearts again to be reminded of all that Jesus has done for us. The first he made us and then he bought us too. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we pray? Lord, I thank you this morning for every single person who's in this room. God, greatly loved by you. And Lord, I pray for what we've shared this morning, God, for that to be real in our own hearts and lives as well. Lord, I pray today that, Lord, you would give us the boldness to be able to share what you've done in our lives with others. God, even as we come up to Easter, Lord, that you give us the boldness to be able to talk about our faith in your Son with others. Whether it's inviting them along to Alpha or Encourage them to be here over Good Friday or Easter Sunday. God, you give us that kind of boldness. But Lord, also by your spirit, you'd be reminding us, Lord, of all that it is you've done in forgiving and redeeming our lives. Lord, today we worship you. Lord, today we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.